0: when people say oh you know how bad was it it's like well it it was as bad as being having a bottle you know thrown at my head yeah um, when I was walking down the street it's as bad as um, riding on a bus and being harassed on the bus and when I got off the bus these young teenage boys got off the bus and chased me all the way to my home Um, it's as bad I mean it's It's as bad as being um, punched in the face by a grown man in a 7-Eleven parking lot. I mean, it's not just that people were, you know, hurling slurs at me or, you know, the the priest was saying homosexuality is a sin. I mean, I had like real, you know, troubling experiences, you know, altercations with people throughout my uh, adolescence and my 20s. And into my 30s, it, was, it, it, it just sort of compounded, I guess, on me.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Broadview. And excuse my slight laryngitis. I'm sharing a recent conversation with a social worker and trans man named Xander Keg. Last spring, several people told me that Xander and I should talk. We both had nuanced views about gender informed by both science and our lived experience. And they were right. We've had a number of good conversations since. And I invited Sander to talk because he'd recently brought up to me the issue of how some people concerned about gender affirming care for youth or adolescent sex changes, if you like to use that term, were using words like mutilation. Or saying these people had ruined their bodies. Language that's pretty upsetting to adult trans people who are quite happy with how they change their bodies. Thank you very much. So, in this conversation, Xander and I will talk about how to effectively critique what's going on with youth gender transition while being respectful of those who've transitioned. We talk about Xander's own transition, the very real dangers that gender nonconforming people face and if there will ever be a way for our society to accept those people as they are. Here's my conversation with Xander Kegg. So welcome to Broadview, Xander Kegg. I'm excited to talk to you today.
0: Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm looking forward to our discussion.
1: So I wanted to start with your transition story, which I think is a little different from what we often hear In the media these days
0: absolutely well so for reference i'm i'm 56 years old and i started my medical transition meaning i started taking testosterone when i was 39 years old so it's been almost 18 years 17 and a half years now and when i first started testosterone right before i started testosterone i should say i had been to a presentation That was given by a medical doctor in San Francisco, California, where I was living at the time at the main library in the Civic Center neighborhood, right, the downtown, so to speak, neighborhood of San Francisco or one of them, and this, it was one of these big auditoriums in the library, and the focus was testosterone right for the ftm right female to male that was sort of the the parlance of the day and people still use that now ftm and mtf male to female it's just not as not as common anymore but it was like the focus was you know what is testosterone and what will it do and what won't it do come and ask your questions and so the room was packed there was st- people were standing in the back sitting in the hallways uh or the aisleways, and the doctor said, What are your questions to the audience? And what she did was, I really liked how she did this. She wrote down every single question on like a big whiteboard. And if there were more, if there was more than one person who asked a similar or same question, she just put a little check mark next to the question that she wrote. And it turned out that most of us had very similar questions. And a lot of them had to do with things like mood and behavior so for example were we going to become all of a sudden really angry and aggressive and violent was testosterone going to do that to us now at the time i believed that it would because i had spent all of my adolescence and my adult years up to that point in lesbian community and so it was pretty common to hear people say within lesbian community lesbian feminist community feminist non-lesbian community that men were violent and it was testosterone that made them violent that was that was just something that was pretty common to hear and so i was reluctant to take testosterone i had actually come to a trans identity about 6 years prior but i was i was afraid that if i took testosterone it would make me violent and so i went to this presentation, I asked my question, just like everybody else did. And she systematically went through every single question. And by the end of it, it was pretty clear that testosterone does not make people violent, that hormone imbalance can make people act in, in aggressive ways or violent ways. The example she gave was premenstrual syndrome, and how sometimes that leads to violent behavior. um, That's legally recognized as like an under duress kind of experience and so we were to be careful with keeping um on a regular schedule of injections you know like not messing with when we did them and how you know what kind of testosterone we were putting into our body and that we got lab tests on a regular basis to make sure we were staying sort of even in our and that we also got our lab results about the same time every time so if if we were going to go get our, if we are going to do a shot on Monday, we should probably get our labs on like Wednesday or Thursday, not on Monday or Tuesday when they were the highest, but also not on Friday when they might've been too low, right? So that we could have reliable, valid data about our testosterone levels. And so for me, that was enough to make the decision that I was going to do testosterone. And so, but another part of the story is that up to that point, Right Prior to that, I never had any sense that I was born in the wrong body. Right, You'll hear people say I was born in the wrong body or they were born in the wrong body. That's not something that has ever occurred to me. Um, I'm just happy to have a body that's functioning. Um, I was paralyzed when I was six years old on the uh, left side of my body for almost a year and a half. Following the MMR vaccination, I contracted rubella, which is the R in MMR, and I was very sick. I had seizures. I was in the hospital for about three months. I was in a medically induced coma for two weeks. Um, I was sick. They didn't think I would survive. And once I came out of the coma... Or was brought out of the coma and I was paralyzed and blind in my left eye they thought well that was it but I thankfully I was able to do speech therapy and physical therapy and recreational therapy and occupational therapy every kind of therapy I could get to be able to you know walk up right now I, I don't rely on wheelchairs or braces or crutches like I did when I was when I was between six and eight years of age So I was happy I'm happy to have a functioning, Uh, For the most part, healthy body. So born in the wrong body just didn't fit with me. I also went through a period of time and I know you'll appreciate this because you wrote the book on being tomboys is that I was a tomboy. Right. And so that and that wasn't anything that I experienced uh, pushback from in my family. So I wore, quote unquote, tomboy clothes, meaning I just wore boys clothes. That's what that means. (laughs) And I like to do things like ride my Schwinn cruiser and take my skateboard to the skateboard park and um, put big skateboard wheels on my Vans tennis shoes and make them my own cool roller skates. Right. Like that's what I really enjoy doing. I played soccer. I was the goalie on my AYSO soccer team in Torrance, California, where I grew up, that's Los Angeles County. And so I was having a pretty normal kind of tomboyish life. I was being raised by a single father. Um, it turns out my mother, which I sort of knew about, I mean, I guess I, I knew about it. My grandmother, which I also knew about, were not happy with my tomboyishness, um, but they mostly communicated that to my father. And it turns out my father never shared those sentiments with me. He's a good guy. He's a wonderful man. He has dementia now. I'm his caregiver. But so he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, he's a wonderful man. Um, but so I was not really bothered by being a tomboy, even if there were external pressures I wasn't really paying attention to them again this was the 70s right late middle the late 70s early 80s free to be you and me was still very a popular sentiment i was wearing clothes um on the rack called Garanimals. <laughs> i can't remember if it was sears or jc petty but it was like these racks of clothes and earth tone colors that were right between the boys and girls department um and i loved them because it was you know it, it, they were i guess you, what we would refer to then as unisex clothing. And so there was really no problem. Um, and it didn't occur to me that I was different in the sense of, I was supposed to be a boy, or I should have been a boy, or God made a mistake, or like that, those sentiments never really occurred. They did never occur to me, I should say. Now, my memory pre-age, say eight, is completely gone because of the encephalitis. That's what I experienced with the MMR. Vaccination was encephalitis, um, so I don't know what my earlier years were like, but neither of my parents said that I had any sort of issues with that. So as I'm going through my adolescence and my uh, young adulthood, I was very much active in in lesbian community. I was dating. I had a girlfriend in high school. Um, I, you know, I was in Los Angeles, right? I, I was not really having any issues around this. Now I knew that, like quote unquote the church was against it, right? I was raised Mexican in a Mexican family, Catholic church. So I knew that the church was against it, but I never heard my priest say word one about homosexuality. Right. And so and I knew that there were issues going on, but I didn't internalize those. That's part of my personality. I don't internalize negative messaging. And so I think that's, you know, that's a good um um I guess, coping mechanism or defense mechanism is that I don't, right, I don't internalize negative messages. And I, I'm not, I'm not a follower, I'm more of a leader. Um, I'm a behind the scenes leader, which is a little, you know, out of the ordinary, I don't need to be in front of the crowd to be the leader. Um, and so I like to encourage people to do their own thing. And so I wasn't easily persuadable in the sense that, you know, oh, you like, boys clothes and you're a lesbian maybe you're actually trans or like nobody was talking that way when I was in high school um and well and then I went into the military and that was pre don't ask don't tell so I was basically a closeted you know lesbian in the military but I enjoyed it very much for the most part um it wasn't really until I went to college when I was 30 years old. So I was a non-traditional student. I worked in what was called at the time the GLBT Student Services Office, and it stood for gay, lesbian, bi, not bisexual, and trans, not transgender. So this was 1995 or 1996 in Denver, Colorado. So it was very progressive, right, in the sense of how that word I think used to be used. Um, And so it was in that environment that I was exposed to a lot of different trans people. And um, because we were bringing them on campus to do talks and performances, we had a library in our office. And so there were books there um, that I could read and, and talk to other people about. And so I was introduced to, I knew about drag queens because my mother had a lot of drag queen friends, but I didn't know about transsexuals and, um, and what were at the time called transgenderist people we don't use that term very much anymore if at all
1: what did but that, what did that term mean that uh
0: virginia prince popularized the term transgenderist um these were people and she was one of them who had been um cross dressers so they did so she was doing at the time what was called like um part-time right cross-dressers that are part-time dressing in women's attire Um, And then transsexuals go full-time, right? That's kind of, but transsexuals at the time were notably having um, surgeries. They were doing hormones and having surgeries. Virginia Prince was a pharmacist and she went from part-time to full-time and she was taking um, estradiol and perhaps an androgen suppression medication. I'm not sure, but she didn't want any surgeries at all. So she was in, transgenderists were sort of, full-time cross-dressers who took hormones, perhaps, maybe not all of them, but didn't have any of the uh, genital reconstruction surgeries. Yeah, Virginia Prince, she started an organization called Tri-S that I think still exists. Um, T-R-I, maybe hyphen E-S-S, I think that might be it. Really interesting organization. And so, so, uh, like I knew about these terms and none of them seemed to fit and then Leslie Feinberg, the author of Stone Butch Blues, came to Denver, Colorado, where I was going to college and was reading from her book, which was new at the time, at the women's bookstore. And so I went and I was sitting on the floor, right, in the bookstore, listening to her read. And she introduced, and I say she because Leslie was lesbian, although a very masculine one, um, but later in life, came out saying that Stone Butch Blues wasn't entirely autobiographical; it was just partly um, autobiographical. But um, that that she was still, you know, a lesbian or of sorts, right? Trans masculine, perhaps in the, today's vernacular. Um, but Leslie was talking about how transgender or trans was uh, a transgressive act, right? So as a gender non-conforming person, my entire life up to that point, I mean, I'm in my early 30s now, I'm, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm transgressive. I transgress societal norms about how um, women or females are supposed to behave and dress and who they're supposed to partner with. So it made sense to me that I was trans because I was transgressive, right, as a prefix, trans right it can mean many different things it can mean to cross over but it can also mean to like um, sort of challenge right mm-hmm. um, and so I went into identifying as trans from that perspective as a gender non-conforming uh, gender transgressing female but a very masculine one and it wasn't until the year 2000 that I then started to think of myself as not so much in lesbian community anymore, but in trans community, although still partnering with women um, and still recognizing my own sex as female, which I still do as a trans man. And so that's kind of how I went into it, which is, it, it, you know, you're right, it's not very common in media portrayals but it is common enough because I've met many people in the trans male community in particular who have a very similar, if not almost same backstory. And so I think it has a little bit to do with the fact that I didn't get a lot of pushback from my family about my gender presentation, my gender expression. I didn't take in and internalize the societal expectations. And so I wasn't fighting anything. So I didn't really have that sense of angst And I didn't internalize it, so I didn't feel inferior or, quote, different in a negative way. I felt different in a very proud way. I considered myself to be countercultural, a renegade. uh, And these are things that I was very proud of. I didn't see them as being negative. And so I think there's something to say about when we're do when we're looking about at trans people, when we're doing research, when we're interviewing, when we're um wanting to know information, we should find out a little bit more about the personality, the temperament, the right of of the trans people, because we're not a monolith. We handle things in very different ways. And it might be interesting for people to know, like, The people that come through adversity, I have had adversity, of course, but the people who've come through it and are more resilient, maybe even anti-fragile, versus the ones who are just succumbing to all of that distress. Like what's making the difference? You know, I think they the ACES study, right? The adverse childhood experiences study was an attempt at looking at that in a broader sense um but it's i don't think that people really drill down into that too much when they're looking at trans people when they're researching trans people when they're talking about trans people when we're talking about treating trans people you we can't be cookie cutter treated right so it's so again i didn't feel like i was born in the wrong body i didn't have a sense that i was the wrong sex at all i think i just got to a point where in my mid 30s I had endured up to that point, physical assault, verbal assault, um, like just nonstop, it felt at the time, of course, uh, onslaught of negativity for being a masculine woman, right? Trying to go to the bathroom at the mall, um, walking hand in hand with my girlfriend down the street. These kinds of things just brought slurs being tossed out passing car windows um people getting frightened or angry at me in bathrooms i mean it was just i just got to a point where i was sick and tired of it really and i again i didn't internalize it in the sense that i should stop doing this or there's something wrong with me i just thought you know society has a problem with masculine women and effeminate men i mean let's be clear about that and so I think I just got to a point where I wanted to. At that point, I had met several trans men. I had watched documentaries about trans men. I had read books written by trans men. And I thought to myself at the time, I wonder what my life would be like if I looked and sounded like a man in society, right? If my masculinity was coming, was being perceived as quote unquote appropriate Mm -hmm. versus inappropriate. Like, would that really, would that really change my life in a significant way? Would I, would I be able to go day by day without the, the, the looks of disgust or contempt that I was, that I was picking up on, or at least that was my interpretation at the time of those looks, um, because I think I had just sort of maybe reached a kind of burnout, so to speak, in public hostility. Um, I thought, I wonder if that's true. And so I went to that presentation and I heard what the doctor had to say. I called her office the next weekday that was available and I made an appointment. And when I went to go see her, I took my, my, I think, girlfriend maybe at the time trying to think yeah my wife now but it's been 20 years that we've been together so I was trying to think about where we were in in our relationship and I told the doctor I said listen this is my story and I gave her the story I just gave you and I said is that legitimate enough of a reason to want to start testosterone and she's like oh yeah I've been at the time she said I've been working with trans people for 12 years this is not the first time I've heard this story Right? It was about things like being safer, more safe in society, right, um, about being able to not be harassed, um, about I had had some problems with jobs because of my masculinity as a woman. I'd been turned down for a job, and they told me right to my face, I, we just't we just can't have you going to high schools um and working with children because the parents are going to freak out. Um, I was a then and still now a facilitator of workshops. And so, uh, so I was hearing people directly say like, no, we can't, we we're, we're, they hired me for a different job, but they couldn't hire me for the job that I applied for. So it's like, I, I just got to almost like a, a breaking point or a burnout point, so to speak in that. And I thought, what the heck, let me try this thing, this testosterone. And if it, if I don't like it, then I'll just stop. And I've been taking it now for 17 and a half years and I haven't regretted one day. I, I actually do love life. I've always loved life, but it's just, there's just a different sense of, of ease that I have. Um, oh, that's not to say that men don't navigate the planet dealing with, you know, all kinds of BS too. It's just a different kind of BS. And, and I, I haven't hit a, a burnout point on that yet. <laughs> so
1: well, it's hard for me to listen to this and not feel sad that mm. there wasn't space for you. And that, I mean, I'm happy that that you are happy and that you have that sense of ease. But it's a sad story about our society's intolerance of gender nonconformity. And I'm not sure we have more tolerance of it. I mean, so you, in some ways you went from being the way you describe trans as this like outlaw thing to, to being a conformist.
0: Well, see, I still feel like, I still feel like, um, I'm very subversive and transgressive because I refer to myself as transsexual. I acknowledge that I'm female sexed natally. Um, so in some ways I'm still like, I'm still that way. And it's like, Part of the part of the issue for me might be or or the issue at large might be that there are a lot of masculine women in society. Right. Um, And many of the very masculine or, quote unquote, butch, you know, lesbians or dykes that I spent a lot of time around didn't have a story very differently from me. Um, But they were much more aligned with being a woman. And I never really aligned with being a woman But I got to say, I don't align with being a man now either, right? I just, I'm a person. I present very masculinely, so to speak. I mean, the funny thing is, is that I was too masculine as a woman, but sometimes people consider me too feminine as a man now, right? And so I refer to it as the gender game, and I just don't play that game. Mm -hmm. And so if I had been more inclined, like a lot of my lesbian friends or dyke friends to be very attached to womanhood, then I probably wouldn't have done what I did, but I wasn't attached to it. I don't reject it. I don't, I'm not, I don't have internalized misogyny. Like I don't, I didn't hate that I was a woman. Um, I don't hate that I'm female. It, It was more just a sense of, since this is all happening very socially, and if i could do this one thing that changes my social experience and it works well why not right and so it to me it didn't it doesn't feel like it didn't and it still doesn't feel like i gave up anything
1: hmm. do, do you think that transitioning when you don't have gender dysphoria makes you more likely to be satisfied that it it solved the problem it solved the problem that you were having but you weren't expecting it to be life-saving and you weren't expecting uh, an emotional transformation
0: perhaps i remember at the time at the time it was gender identity disorder it wasn't gender dysphoria in the dsm four. And so it. I started testosterone in 2005. In 2007, I started a blog and I didn't get very far into it because I got sidetracked, but I, rem- I I've reviewed, I've gone back and reread it several times over the years. And one of the things I wrote in this blog was that I didn't feel like I had a gender identity disorder. I felt that society had a gender identity disorder and that their attempt to force people into these male and female or man and actually man and woman boxes was really the problem. And I actually, you know, as a workshop facilitator, back then, I was facilitating workshops um, periodically for an organization called the National Community for Christians and Jews, which became the National Community. Oh, what did it become for conflict resolution, maybe or NCCJ. And they had been around since like, I don't know, like maybe the 20s or 30s, really old organization that initially was about bringing to sort of an interfaith, right, bringing together Christians and Jews for for conflict resolution purposes. But they expanded out. And part of the trainings that we did uh, through NCCJ was looking at the quote man box and the woman box and asking teenagers and young adults to give us words for, you know, what does it mean to be a man? And we'd write them in there. What does it mean to be a woman? And so this idea of the societal expectations that are coming from family, community, church, um, or synagogue, right, just just different religious faiths, that those messages, some people internalize those messages, see? And so... Whether you internalize them or you externalize them like I do, they're still in society. And so it's possible that people now just refer to that as gender dysphoria because that societal pressure is creating a distress for them internally that really they might just be tomboys or sissies, right, so to speak. They're going to grow up to be lesbians or bisexual women or just more like you know, sort of tough straight women um, and same with the guys, right? It's like they maybe they're gay, maybe they're bisexual, maybe they're going to, you know, do drag performance, you know, maybe they're just going to be a more sensitive, you know, straight man. We don't really know. We don't know about that. And so, but I think that in some cultures, there is much more pressure on conforming to that you know, where they even divide them up in places of worship and style of dress. And right, you can see it's happening all over the world still that that really that you're not allowed to be non-conforming. So I was able to be non-conforming. Lots of people can be non-conforming. I think the problem of late is that non-conformity to gender expectations of gender roles and is being somehow in for some people, I think it's being converted into a that you must be trans then. I think that's probably, you know, what's what's happening. Um in an effort to, I think it's a good faith effort, in an effort to rescue those children to save them from all the years of agony and pain um that some trans adults have ex- experienced when they were younger. So I I I get the the impulse to want to do that, but I think it's without without truly knowing what those young people are experiencing and going through. Cause they probably don't know what they're going through. That's uh, right. how to articulate it. You know,
1: that's right. And they're not being raised with free to be you and me, like you and I were, you know, they're being raised with, if you don't conform to gender norms, you know, you might have a girl brain in a boy body and mm. you might be born in the wrong body and they get, they're getting these messages very young and so they're having a they're not learning as much about gender norms because as you and I both know because you did that piece on the gender you didn't do the gender unicorn the gender bread person yeah um you know that that often these lessons about gender for children are say that gender is a feeling inside you and they don't say much about gender roles and gender norms and gender stereotypes. And
0: yeah. Yeah, it's almost as if we went from, well, not went from, there are certain, there are certain elements within society, right? Let's say within the United States, that are cultural, maybe religious slash cultural based, where there are very um strict gender norms. And so that can be. That can be very difficult for kids who are maybe uh, feeling a more non-conforming kind of internal sense of their gender, or maybe a same-sex attraction, um, and they're seeing that it's that's not allowable. Um, but then we've gone, in a, some sense, it seems like there's a pendulum swing, which happens, right? The pendulum swings to another extreme, which is if you feel any of those out of sorts with gender nonconformity or same-sex attraction, then, then maybe, or you must be, or we should at least give you the opportunity to investigate if you are trans, right? That's probably what that social transition period is, um, and but it's still going based off of these norms, which is – it's like to me, that's what's sad, right? That free to be you and me, and second wave feminism, um, which I was raised in, um, you know, in the household. My father was a card carrying member of the National Organization of Women, or now, and so like, you know, and did P flag stuff. I mean, so I, you know, I, I grew up in a really supportive environment, and in some ways, you know, maybe that maybe I'm taking it too far, but in some ways, I wonder, like, okay, free to be you and me. My female sex shouldn't restrict me. I should be able to be whatever I want, do whatever I want. So why not, why can't I then live as a man? Like how it, like is is that, is that going like, is that too far? Is that too far down the uh, you know, um uh what what would they call that? The um the um is it empty slate, right? notion about gender that it's all constructed um it's like well why not why why not be a female who presents in the world as a man isn't wouldn't that just be one example of i'm free to be me (laughs) right it's like it's probably one that a lot of people don't like (laughs) and wouldn't accept um but it's like when when articulating, you know, you can be and do whatever you want, can we say, oh, except this? Like well, we put roadblocks on who and what good, you can be.
1: It's a good question, but if you had grown up in a society or lived as an adult in a society which had room for you and and you weren't harassed, mm. you know, then you might not, I mean, you don't feel like you gave up anything you said.
0: Um, No, I mean, it's when people say, oh, you know, how bad was it? It's like, well, it, it was as bad as being having a bottle, you know, thrown at my head. Yeah. Um, when I was walking down the street it's as bad as um riding on a bus and being harassed on the bus and when I got off the bus these young teenage boys got off the bus and chased me all the way to my home um it's as bad I mean it's it's as bad as being um punched in the face by a grown man in a 7-eleven parking lot I mean it, it, it's not just that people were you know Hur- hurling slurs at me or, you know, the preach tr- the priest was saying homosexuality is a sin. I mean, I had like yeah. real, you know, troubling experiences, yeah. you know, altercations with people throughout my uh, adolescence and my twenties and into my thirties. It was, it, it it just sort of compounded, I guess, on me.
1: Yeah, I mean that sounds really traumatizing and I know that gender nonconforming people are vulnerable to violence. And yeah. and you are safer now as someone who passes. But it doesn't create more room in society, which is not your job, but for for gender nonconforming yes. people and yes. And that is, you know, that has been the goal of my work is to create more understanding that actually we don't need to make as you were alluding to before we don't need to make any meaning out of childhood gender nonconformity we don't know if a person will choose to transition um because it's easier or because they feel so uncomfortable we don't know if that person will be gay or lesbian and we don't know much i mean i interviewed 80 people who had been tomboys for my book and the only thing they had in common in adulthood was a kind of self-confidence that I really envied as a non-termite. But I I wanna segue into, um, you know, we've talked now a little bit about some of the controversies about childhood transition and the different ways to think about it. And one of the reasons we were gonna talk today was to discuss how both sides are talking about this issue. And by both sides, I don't mean left and right because I don't divide it that way. I mean, for and against. And I know there's actually more sides than that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the rhetoric, first of the those who are against childhood transition and how they can speak about it in a way that is still maintains space and respect for trans people.
0: Sure. Well, I think the the terminology that gets used is problematic in the sense that I think it'll be difficult to find ways to build a bridge or come together to work toward a solution, but maybe that's not their intention. Maybe their intention isn't to find a solution that is um, mutually agreed upon, so to speak, because they'll use terms like mutilation when they're discussing, you know, a a chest reconstruction surgery, which I've had, I don't consider it mutilation, (laughs) you know? Um, And so it's one of those things where I, I think it's a, it's a loaded term, right? Mutilation. I think that's a very subjective thing. If somebody who um, had top surgery or chest reconstruction or double mastectomy, there are different names for that, um, which ha- with, they call it double mastectomy with reconstruction, right? Cause it's not the same as a double mastectomy for um, breast cancer. Uh it, they might feel that what they did to their body was mutilated. I'm not taking that away. So if people want to talk specifically about their own bodies and the experience they had and say, I feel like I've been mutilated or what I did was mutilation, fine. You know, they can express themselves. It's it's when it gets used uh, more broadly saying that um, – you know, that these surgeries are mutilation and not even just, you know, because they're not at, at some point, they're not going to say ch- uh, with just children, it just becomes mutilation across the board, right? Chest reconstruction, phalloplasty, vaginoplasty, they'll refer to them as mutilation, right? We're mutilating our bodies. And I think that that, um, that creates a defensiveness in people who have had the surgeries who right, that seems natural. They're gonna to want to defend their their decision making, right? Their position, their bodies, right? They they want to feel that they have, you know, autonomy in their bodies and what they do with their bodies. And so to be told that they've just mutilated it can be distressing for people. Me, I just I just reject it. I didn't mutilate my body and I move on. But some people are again, they're gonna internalize those messages. So I think if there are people who are quote, against surgeries for children, which I also, um, you know, I, I don't think children should be having, you know, uh, surgeries, um, of this type, right. Um, under do, you mean age.
1: Adole- do you mean adolescence too when you say children? Cause that, that's part of the language problem. Like some people say, well, children oh. aren't having surgeries. Right. And then yes. prepubescent children, but it's not it's pubescent children having surgery.
0: Yeah. So, okay. By children, I mean, um, Minors, so anybody under the age of eighteen, anybody under the age of eighteen. Now I know that that's not a that's not a um a favored, you know, uh, sentiment from for 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 people that are on the four side of things and that really sort of aggressive kind of what I would refer to as authoritarian way, um, that if you don't agree with them, you're transphobes. But if you if you don't agree with the people who call surgeries mutilation, um, then you're uh, some other kind of, you know, ideologue or, or you're immoral, right? There's there's some of that language. Um so I think mutilation is one of those terms. Um I think also the phrase the usage of the phrase gender ideology is confusing. Um I mean, it works. I mean, that that's what sophistry is all about. Right. It's about finding ways to encapsulate in as few words as possible an idea and then expounding on that idea. Um, I get it. I might be at my bachelor's in speech. I understand sophistry. I understand, you know, to a certain degree, like marketing and advertising and campaign slogans. I mean, th- th- there's, an, there's an effort to do things like that. I think that's where, quote, gender care or gender affirming care has also come from. Because who would be against care that's affirming, right? It's um, So it, there. it's smart. It's smart messaging. But it also is the kind of messaging that uh, will only appeal, I believe, to certain um populations of our society that are much uh, that are in the minority of our population and so there's a certain segment of our population that's that's going to like things like mutilation and gender ideology and then there's going to be another popular side of the on the so the, the other side so to speak although you as you rightly said there's more than two sides to this is uh, is they're going to have the very strong you know reaction against it so, you know, as a person who's more of a centrist or a moderate and also a person who is interested in depolarizing you know conversations and i my my first master's is in conflict analysis and resolution i'm I'm very much in, you know wanting to find ways to manage and resolve conflict and one way to do that is to not use charged language like this um i've I've studied and i've trained and i've been a a trainer of nonviolent communication. I know that system very well. I've also trained in powerful non-defensive communication, an entirely different um, you know, communication technique. And so uh, that would that's my aim. My aim is to find ways to talk about the concerns people have without using such charged and polarizing language on, okay, well, on quote uh, both sides. Uh,
1: a counterpoint. Yeah. So one side is using very, very charged language and another side is using very euphemistic language. Yes that's that's hard for us to object to.
0: That's right. Because so, if you don't approve of an affirming, you know, methodology of treatment, then you're you're well you're you're disapproving then you, and then you're a bad person because then you don't care about children who are suffering. And um, these children are, you know, are, you know they're standing at the ledge of suicide, right? That's, so they'll use somewhat of like an emotional kind of threat of, of suicide. And so that, that gets pulled out quite a bit. Um, that's the and one so, thing that's
1: clear. But I think just when we say top surgery when we oh, say yeah. affirming care, even when we say gender identity, to a certain extent, we're we're talking we're we're obscuring a kind of precision, and mm. and often couching it in kind of the language of diversity and inclusion, and it makes it difficult for liberals to object because you know we've in in theory we're the ones who embrace pluralism and diversity and a big tent and when it's a broad hazy concept it's hard to object to when you know the the times yeah. the, the new york times ran a piece that said more ch- teens are choosing top surgery but i think if they had said more teens are choosing bilateral double mastectomy with chest reconstruction There'd be a very different reaction. So I think Mm. I think one side is too you too too figurative and one side is is too literal or something.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, using using terminology like top surgery and bottom surgery, these are in-group. Slang terms, right? These are these these are terms that have been used for you know probably at least two that I know of, and possibly three or more decades within the adult trans population. Um, and so I remember when I went to go have top surgery, my surgeon called it double mess bilateral double mastectomy with chest reconstruction. That's how it shows up on my insurance, um, not my insurance. I paid out of pocket, but it, how it shows up on my medical record. Right. So these were terms that we used because that's what that's what cultural communities do. Right. They have insider language. Right. The broader LGBT community does that. You know, um, black African-American communities, Hispanic communities do that. We have words that we use that are shorthand. So that we don't have to say bilateral double mastectomy or chest reconstruction. We shorthand it because we know what we're talking about. But when we go outside of our community, so to speak, we know to refer to it in different ways. What I see has happened is that in-group, the in-group vernacular has now become the, the, is now being used in professional, academic, medical settings. That, that, and so it's, that's one of those things where it it makes sense for us to use it in our in-group settings. but once we're outside of our group, it I think you're right. I think it does um it clouds perhaps what's really being said because most people probably don't know what top surgery what that means. And when they do find out what it means, most most of the women I know, when they found out I was having quote top surgery, they were very concerned for me because their mother had breast cancer or they had it, or a friend of theirs had it. And it was a devastating surgery for those women. Whereas, you know, in the FTM community or, you know, trans male community, you know, we're celebrating the same surgery, so to speak, but it is slightly different surgery. It's under very different circumstances. Um, But And ours is outpatient, whereas they end up spending sometimes a night in the hospital. Right. So it's sort of like, oh, my God, they're sending you home the day of your surgery. You know, it's alarming. It was alarming for people back then. And I would imagine it would be if it was talked about in that in that more in-depth way.
1: So one of the things that we talked about before was that these the foreign against sides, the loud voices are actually a minority of people. And, mm-hmm. and do you feel like the kind of trans activist voice that many of us are familiar with that says um, things like, you know, sex is a spectrum or immaterial, and everyone has a gender identity, or um, you know, anyone objecting to this is a is a bigot. Um, do you think that's the minority of trans people? That's the first question, and the second is, what's the what's the responsibility, if there is any, of of trans people who don't agree with? I know you don't like that the gender ideology term, but for lack of a better term. Yeah. Who don't agree with that and are concerned about what's going on with kids. What's their responsibility and how do we create an environment where they can speak up if they want to? That's three questions.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I should have included somewhere in my, my bio that I, I do have ADHD, so I, I'm I'm not remembering the three questions. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but let me get back to what I what I think I remember is one of them, which is you know, how we talk about things. Happens because we have a worldview, we have a paradigm. And generally speaking, people are modernist or postmodernist, you know, just in a sort of s- sloppy way of just dis- of discussing this, right? And so I'm a modernist, I'm not a postmodernist. And so, in a postmodernist view, the idea that you know everything is subjective and everything can be deconstructed and everything is that is some form of oppression, you know, um, makes sense to a person who holds a postmodernist view. As a modernist, I'm like, no, sex is a stable, you know, it's a part of reality. And so it, it doesn't make any sense to me to think of my sex as subjective. I think gender identity is one of those concepts that is fairly new. I mean, it's been around maybe what, 40, 50 years. And I think it was, my understanding is it was built on this notion of blank, you know, sort of blank screen or what is it? Is it blank?
1: Blank slate.
0: Blank slate. Yeah. That, that, that our masculinity and our femininity and our, the way that we present and the way that we we function in the world is all socially constructed. Well, that's not a modernist view. That's a that's more of a postmodernist view, right? Socially constructed, you know, that's in sociological terms. I'm not a sociologist, I'm a social worker. And so I don't I don't live in the world of sociological, postmodernist worldview. That's not where I live. And so that's part of the issue, I think, is that when you have people who hold completely different worldviews in which they frame their life and life around them, you get those people to come together. Well, they're just going to talk past each other because they're basically speaking a different language almost. Right. And so I think that's what's happening. And so the people that are on this so so called extremes of the for and against are people that are arguing from a perspective who might not know that they hold that perspective, or they or if they do, they might not recognize that other perspectives are also held by people and that perhaps they're legitimate as a viewpoint. That doesn't mean that they're legitimate for making law or policy or statute or ordinance, right? That should be handled by more reasonable-minded people that aren't using that kind of influence um, and that kind of power dynamic. So I'd say that we we have to recognize that we all have different core values. We all have different worldviews. We all have different um, uh, moral foundations, right? so um, one of the things that i do as a social worker is i i i coach people and i do trainings on getting more familiar with the self as a clinician and investigating these things, like what is my worldview, what are my core values where what are my moral foundations? um what kind of intervention you know models do i do I prefer what theoretical orientation do I hold as a clinician? Most people can graduate school and not know any of these things about themselves, and so that's something that I bring into the trans community as well and so I do think that the most um the most aggressive slash authoritarian, the most um, with the like the louder voices that are threatening people, you know, their 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 name calling. I do think that's the minority. Unfortunately, I I think, and I'm not an expert in this, but I I think the algorithms of social media just elevate those voices, and so it seems to people that it's a majority view, but. And I'm not alone in saying this, it is a minority view. Because I can go into trans community all over the country in, in, in person or virtually, and not deal with any of these kind of people. I can interact, every, I interact every year with hundreds if not thousands of when I was going to conferences. And this this person, this kind of person was definitely in the minority. But because of social media and its influence, especially on younger, more impressionable people, they might think, oh, this is what my community says. So then I should believe it and I should act from it because I want to be a good member of my community.
1: Well, I also think that the more activist voices from the trans community are are influencing policy, they're influencing guidelines, they're publishing scholarly papers and pushing ideas that I think benefit them. You know, I think, I think for this, you know, in the, in the desistance literature, the 10 or 11 studies about kids with early onset gender dysphoria, Most of them with under watchful waiting where they were not psychologically transitioned, most of them desisted, the majority were gay. And then there was this 10 to 15% who, who never stopped and went on to transition. And I think what's happened is we've rejiggered things to respond to that minority population so that we're treating, every kid as if they're going to grow up to be that 12 to 15%. I agree. And part of it is the kind of obsession right now with protecting minoritized and marginalized communities on the left, the kind of overcorrection that we're in.
0: Well, if you think about it from the perspective of for how long, right, decades, access to power was denied yeah. to the quote, homosexual and transsexual communities, right? The ability to be teachers was questioned, the ability to become a doctor, the ability to serve in the military, the ability to parent, the ability to, to marry the, the person that you love, you want to spend the rest of your life with, right? These things were being denied. And then there were the, the gay rights movement and right and transgender rights, all these. And so then all of a sudden, slowly but surely, people started getting access to those things that they were denied and so you have a bunch of trans people who are lawyers, professors, doctors, um, you know, CEOs of companies, right? It's uh, and so not only not only did we get in, we we went all the way to the top and have become quite successful, mm-hmm. right? In in that standard kind of you know, American capitalist way of thinking about it, we gained the success, we can serve in the military, we can run companies, we can, you know, we can teach classes. And so I think what happened is that, you know, if if in the earlier days of this, quote unquote, you know, trying to gain access, the charges were, we were being kept out, we were being oppressed, we were being discriminated against, it was all based on prejudice. It's like, well, now we're we're at all those places in power structures right government right with all the influence uh, that we have through advocacy so it's like have we now become the people who are being prejudiced and trying to deny other people now their access you know is is our government agencies denying grants to research projects that don't align with the current you know, understanding of what's acceptable research? I mean, the answer is yes, of course, we know that that is happening. You know, are are large media corporations, um, you know, saying no to news stories written and, and televised that don't align? Well, of course, we know that's true. You know it personally, right? So we do know that this is happening. School teachers saying, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be doing this are now being, you know, shunned, maybe even you know, suspended or fired. Um, and so what's happening now is is what's above all of this is our our judicial system, our courts. And so that's where everything's ending up now. It's going through the judicial process through, and it's going into the courts. And largely the courts are finding in the favor of people who are saying, you can't force me to say that word, or you can't stop me from speaking my mind about this topic, or, you know, you can't you can't fire me from my job because i say something that people don't like right it's it's slowly starting to happen what i don't see happening is the the news media all forms of it right in a in a broad sense of the way sharing all that information about those lawsuits right that's what's not people don't know that that systems are losing and individuals are winning those lawsuits because we do have laws that protect us on, right? We have we have civil rights laws that protect us whether we're Hispanic, black, or white, right? Irish. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And so, you know, for example, in the schools where they're where they're, you know, compelling pronoun usage among the student population. Well, these are making their way through courts now, and they're siding with the children. They're saying children are not to be compelled in public school to use pronouns they don't want to use.
1: I know there was a teacher. I know there was a case that a teacher won his suit. I feel like it's been a real mixed bag in the courts. And and Mm. partly, partly it's because it's, as you and I know, it takes a really long time to understand the complexities of these issues and judges are not experts. And yeah. it, it depends what expertise the judges are deferring to. And so if the judges are looking mm. at the APA or the AAP or the AMA, you know, then then they'll then they'll side um with, with the kind of activists since activists have helped um change the guidelines of those places. But I, I you're yeah. right, if they start thinking of it as a free speech issue, or they come to understand the research, or they come to understand what's happening in, in other countries, maybe they'll have different decisions. But I guess we're gonna, I guess that's what the next couple of years hold for us. As we start to see the lawsuits, the first two detransitioner lawsuits have been filed. I know there's a company, a a law office in California that's been investigating, looking into uh, consumer action around puberty blockers. And and I think there are, as more people feel they've been really hurt, we will see a new round of lawsuits. And I think the schools changed in reaction to lawsuits. I think the Gavin Grimm lawsuit, and before that the Nicole Maines lawsuit sort of scared the schools into changing and and thinking they were doing the right thing. And, And maybe in those cases for those kids, they were the right, that was the right thing to do. And it's really hard to know because as you said at the beginning, there isn't one way to treat somebody going through gender dysphoria or identifying as trans. And I guess it's a really
0: hard thing to make policy about. Well, I, I think the thing with the courts that's interesting is that it depends on the level, right? It's like the lower level courts where it's like, you know, one judge and 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 their their team, right? Their team of of clerks and then as you go up in the system within the state and then off into the federal courts then you know you get it's not just one judge anymore right you can get to an appeal level where maybe there's like three judges and then ultimately supreme court with six judges right so it's when you the more judges you have then that's where i think the 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 variety of influences and information and the that's coming at them because even in the lower courts, they're going to get the amicus briefs and the white papers. And so they're going to be and they they could be influenced by that because, you know, or they're looking at precedents. Right. And so. And we we're we're always saying that we don't want activist judges. Right. That's been a that's been a liberal charge for a while now to not have activist judges, because for a while it, it was coming from, a, a you know, the quote, wrong side of the aisle. Right. Um, and so it's like, oh, but now it's okay to have activist judges. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if they're on our side, we love them. Yeah, it's it's probably never good because they're supposed to be above all that. Um, yeah.
1: Xander, let's, let's end with your work with FAIR and this idea of the child affirming approach.
0: Mm. Yeah, so I've been working with FAIR for about a year and a half now by Bartning the, the one of the fa- yeah, yeah we, foundation against intolerance and racism uh, fairforall.org little plug um i was invited by by Bartning the founder of fair to become um, an advisor so on the advisory board like you are and about 3 or 4 months later he asked me if i'd be interested in becoming a senior fellow and doing some work with fair so since around i think december of last year i've been a senior fellow and contributing in a lot of different ways i'm one of the fair diversity trainers fair diversity is a pro-human approach to dei training in corporate settings so i've been doing that for about a year now Um, i also help fair and medicine which is one of our networks of professionals people who are physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, psychologists, social workers, a, a lot of different healthcare occupations coming together to you know share best practices. And um, they write articles, we do a lot of webinars. So I've been involved in a lot of webinars um, with a lot of people that are part of the trans community that are very outspoken like I am on these topics. Erin Kimberly, for one, from Gender Dysphoria Alliance, and Corinne Cohen from the Gender Consumer Care Network, and uh, Dr. Erica Anderson, um, a psychologist. All of us are trans and talking about these topics. And um, yeah, I've the so the on the fairforall.org website, there's a section called issues, and one of the issue topics is gender. There's a lot of different topics. And so people can go and and click and and look at, you know, what FAIR has to say about gender. Um, There's also when we talk about child affirming, that's coming up a lot in our um, FAIR and Education Network, which is made up of K through twelve teachers, um, university professors, school librarians, school administrators, a lot of people involved in public and private and parochial schools around the United States and Canada coming together to talk about standards, guidelines, recommendations for you know the fair approach, the pro human as we call it approach to working with children uh, of all types, including g- gender non conforming, and what we've come down to is this idea of that we are child affirming not gender affirming so we affirm children to express their gender however they want to express it and to be quote unquote conforming or non-conforming to the expectations of gender and to not try to squelch that but also not to turn it into something that needs to be medicalized right just letting kids be kids
1: sounds great let kids be kids
0: yeah right just let kids be kids and so fair is made up of probably somewhere between 80 and 90 chapters around the united states and canada we have tens of thousands of members a lot of them are parents and people um Who are in these chapters are working in their local areas to try and educate school board members and parent-teacher associations on bringing in this child-affirming message into the schools and articulating that parents need to be brought in on issues that affect their children, that teachers are not mental health providers. And they shouldn't be administering, you know, mental health advice um, or psychoeducation in the classroom. That that's the job of of a licensed mental health provider, which schools have. Yeah. Right. Schools have licensed social workers and psychologists and you know, they have those things, but it's largely been the job, it's been of teachers. To bring in the transformative social emotional learning or SEL curriculum, um, changing the anti-bullying curriculum to be, you know, more in alignment with the with the current sort of ethos of what are the real problems in society. Right, it differs, you know, school to school, but it's all of these things are then taking up the time of learning academic subjects. Yeah. And intermingling socializing with other children, learning how to how to experience you know wins and 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 losses you know um and learning how to have you know conflict resolution like me that we they used to have in schools maybe a decade ago they had little designated mediators during recess that would go over and sort of like mediate a little dispute that was happening on the playground you know.
1: Well, those are some of the lawsuits that are making their way through the courts now about about um, schools socially transitioning children without without telling the parents. So that'll be part of what we're watching and seeing how it plays out. It's going to be an interesting couple of
0: years. I mean, my my prediction is that the the parents will win because almost always parents rights Trump a lot of those other issues I think they have historically as well.
1: Um,
0: but we'll see, right see. Teachers are not the custodians or guardians of children. I mean they're for a period of time, you know the children are in their care, right the the minors are in their care, but they don't get to supplant parental you know yeah. values and 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 uh, authority.
1: Well, we'll find out. We'll find out, you know, the last yeah. line of my book, not to give it away is um, it'll be interesting to find out what happens. So,
0: yeah.
1: you know, well, you and I will ch- check back in periodically and see where we are, but Xander, I want to. Yeah. Thank
0: well, you just you really quickly, happen. what I don't want to happen is an extreme negative reaction to all this becomes the norm for a period of time i don't want to continue going through these me- these like major pendulum swings in how this issue is being dealt with in society reasonable minds need to come together sit down at the table and work this out so that we don't have a backlash
1: i agree with you completely and have been arguing that point by saying that's why the left needs to speak up and maybe that's why more trans people like you need to speak up And those of us who are afraid of the backlash, but also afraid of where the left has gone can, the more we can speak out and feel safe to speak out and create an environment where people feel safe to speak out, the less, more we can try to
0: prevent that backlash. Well, and Bill Maher's doing it every, on his (laughs) show regularly. So, and he has a lot of influence, I think. So if people are responding, they're they're laughing they're clapping um so he's maybe he'll have an effect let's comedians can do that i
1: think (laughs) well xander thank you so much this has been a great
0: conversation you're welcome i really appreciate it i have a wonderful time speaking with you and i look forward to doing we're going to be doing more things together so i'm really looking forward to that yeah me too thanks you're welcome